Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a makeover for the Pentagon's cyber future, unchaining an unexpected intelligence source, and the budget countdown is on to the end of the fiscal year. It's Wednesday, September 14th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast sponsored by Chainalysis. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Contractors have new latitude to raise prices to fight inflation thanks to new guidance from the General Services Administration. The guidance says contracting officers can approve the increases. The guidance will stay in effect until March 2023. The Office of Personnel Management is taking applications for the next group of presidential management fellows. Applicants have until September 27th to submit their materials. OPM will select the semifinalists about a month after the application deadline. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, Bill LaPlante, one of the headliners at Defense Talks tomorrow at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. The Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Tech, Ann Newberger, will be there, too. You can see the rest of the lineup and register through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Changes are coming to one of the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification's key documents. The head of the Cyber Authorization Board, Matthew Travis, says the CMMC assessment process doc is a pre-decisional draft that the Cyber AB will edit. Eric Crucius is a partner at Holland tonight. Eric, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Changes are coming. What changes would you like to see? What changes do you think will benefit industry? And what changes do you think will benefit the department as the Cyber AB kind of revamps what they're doing here? Welcome. Thanks. Uh, it's good to be here. And I'm glad we have about three hours to discuss this topic. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize this is a long form podcast now. <laughs> um there's a lot to unpack there. I think you saw the um, the AB release the how assessments were going to go that document that was in draft form and they specifically said it was in draft form. They were looking for feedback, and um, I think one of the largest open questions that we see is whether this whether um, they're going to treat kind of those backend service providers in a way that makes it easier for con- smaller business contractors to kind of adopt another company's platform and use that uh, as, a, as a foundation for a review, a CMMC review. There are a lot of companies out there that provide, you know, kind of back office cybersecurity services where they'll host your data, you know, they'll put the security controls in place and the contractor is, you know, has minimal kind of control over that um, and, and minimal say in how those controls are designed. And that's a much more economical way to kind of do this for a small business contractor. And also, DoD has tens of thousands of contractors to get certified. And if they're using, you know, some common service providers that provide that cybersecurity solution, it's going to be much easier to go through all those um, audits and assessments in a short period of time. Otherwise, you're going to be looking at 50, 60, 70,000 bespoke systems. And that's not an easy task. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always hopeful <laughs> and I'm hopeful that the next version will kind of iron some of those questions out. But in the end, I think this is going to sound like a terrible thing to say, but I, I don't think we're going to know how it's going to work until we just kind of dive in and, and work at it. And I think we'll get valuable lessons learned from that. And those lessons learned um, will allow um, contractors to kind of end the AB to find the right path. 
I understand why you think that's probably the best course of action to just jump in, but I wonder if that's not what a lot of people are actually afraid of, is that we're going to have to jump in the deep end and try to learn how to swim from the beginning. Right. I, I, mean, I think the jumping in thing works well for all the, all the contractors, contractors except for the ones that are on the initial wave because <laughs> they're the ones that the lessons are going to be learned on, and it may be at some cost to them. Um, monetarily and otherwise. So, um, you know, we have had some contractors step forward to undergo the initial assessments. Um, and uh, I'm sure the AB and those contractors and DOD will learn a lot from those initial assessments and how they're conducted. And we can't forget that um, that assessments had to be done on those C3 PAOs. They had to be assessed as well. So hopefully there's some kind of muscle memory there and there's already some lessons learned that they're implementing. But I think the biggest win could be is if they figure out a way to make this work for small businesses, and that's allowing small businesses to use a third-party solution to protect their stuff. Is the incentive of being among the first to potentially win work enough of an incentive to get those first movers to want to become first movers? Probably. Um, you know, Right now, the only kind of published incentive that I've seen for those first movers is that they get a longer period where they have uh, a certification. So instead of three years, it's three years plus this extra time. It, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw DOD work its way into solicitations when you look at when you're evaluating contractors and you evaluate their corporate experience and the, their technical proposals. And if that contractor has a CMMC certification, perhaps they have an advantage in, in some of those categories, depending on how they're written in a solicitation. But then you take it on the other side and contractors who are going through this now are undergoing an expense that other contractors are not undergoing. And that perhaps makes them less competitive because their overhead or GNA is higher because they're absorbing all these expenses to go through a CMMC certification that others are not. How do you even that playing field? Or, or is it even possible, or is that just kind of the nature of things? And that's kind of that's why I go back to that question I asked a moment ago, which is, is the possibility of being among the first to get work enough to overcome that for some company? Right. Um, I mean, I think I think there is a way to overcome it. I mean, you know, in procurements right now, if you look at the Buy American Acts, you know. Companies that manufacture things in America and the United States are given a price advantage. You know, if the prices are even, the one that's in the, that's made in America gets a price advantage, leg up in the procurement. And they could do something like that for CMMC certified companies, where um, where there's a certain percentage. But I think that's a lot harder to quantify. So I'm not sure that there's really anything that DoD can do about it. Unfortunately, aside from paying for companies to get certified. Um, but I think one way to kind of even that playing field is to allow um, a higher rating on some kind of technical part of the proposal or the corporate experience part of the proposal where those are options, because usually those those categories are are higher than are more important than price when the government's evaluating whether to 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 do business with one contractor versus another. And maybe I'm naive or, or ignorant, but it seems like that would be a relatively easy rule or policy change to implement that doesn't seem like that's a heavy lift right i think i think it it can be done pretty easily where you know perhaps the defense price the defense policy folks say okay in every procurement where there's a best value evaluation 
you're going to add a pop, you're going to add a um, category for cybersecurity um, prowess, cybersecurity ability. And if you have a CMMC certification, you automatically get an outstanding in that category. Other companies can work up to that outstanding, but it's going to be much more difficult. And then that that kind of new category has to be part of the mix. Maybe it's up to each contracting officer to determine the mix, but it has to be somewhere in that mix to allow flexibility and allow those companies that have gone through CMMC certification to have a leg up. Now, I pointed you to comments because you were in San Diego, God bless you, and I wish I could have been there with you. Um, I pointed you to comments that Stacey Buschanek made at uh, Billington this week talking about CMMC, and, and, and I'm paraphrasing her remarks, but she said basically that the Pentagon will put out guidance, the Pentagon will put out advice, but it will not tell, it will not be prescriptive about how companies get to CMMC compliance. Do you think that that makes the most sense for the department and does that make the most sense for the vendors that will try to become compliant, Eric? I think it makes the most sense. I don't really think there's an alternative. Um, I think if they're too prescriptive, it doesn't allow contractors flexibility to find the best solutions for them, depending on their circumstances. I mean, that's the blessing and the curse of, of NIST 800, special publication 800-171, where you have you know, you're told you need to get to this endpoint, but not how to get there. And that's great for companies because it does give them the flexibility to kind of figure out how to get there, whatever works best, whatever is the most economical. But then the fear, of course, is that, you know, an auditor or an assessor comes in after the fact and says, you did this the wrong way. And the way you did it was not, was not sufficient. But again, by doing it this way that they're proposing, it's not a check the box scenario as much where you have to have this wire over here or this password over here or whatever it is. Uh, so I think it's the right, I think it's the right path though. It does have its challenges. Eric Crucius, great to have you on the program. Welcome back from San Diego. Thanks for coming on today, my friend. Thanks. Always great to be here. You can read more about the cyber AB in today's show notes, the daily I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Voting's open now for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop 50. You can vote for your choices till September 30th, and we announce the winners November 3rd. You can find a link to see the finalists and place your votes in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Federal government law enforcement agencies have clawed back more than $30 million in cryptocurrency North Korean hackers stole earlier this year. The FBI was one of the agencies on the case. Brian Capra is director of strategic applications for Chainalysis. Chainalysis sponsors today's Daily Scoop podcast. Brian, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. What's the threat landscape look like in crypto today? And is that different than it is for federal leaders in any other specialty? Welcome. Yeah, the threat landscape today is, uh, I think the biggest the biggest threat right now is the lack of understanding of crypto. You know, like I spent my career, you know, looking at how terrorists use use money to finance their operations. And people got the, the, the sense that we had to follow the money, but didn't know how to follow the money. So it took a, a better part of like 20 years to get people really on board to identify how, you know, different, different, types of transfer of value, you know, are a threat, whether it be Hawaladars, traditional finance, and now crypto. You know, I was introduced to crypto back in um, probably 2012 
when I just I just left SOCOM and they were asking about, hey, what is Bitcoin being used for? Is Treasury looking at it? And we really didn't, you know, we said that we had people looking at it, but we really didn't understand it. You know, and so today the big lift, and I'm sitting in Colombia as we speak, you know, doing exactly what I'm saying is educating folks on how people are using crypto to transfer value, not just for legitimate purposes, but also for illegitimate purposes. As I looked at some of the materials that you sent me, some background stuff, the thing that jumped out at me as potentially the biggest, uh, you know, maybe stumbling point for uh, government people to think about is the key element that crypto plays in ransomware and the way that bad actors, especially state actors, deploy ransomware and expect payment for that ransomware. Is that, am I reading that right? Is that really the, the, the prime thing that folks should think about and the way that it fits into the broader threat landscape, not just for um, cybersecurity, but, but for security overall? Security overall, but it, it you know ransomware is one of a, f- a few things that you know poses a threat you know, using crypto. Uh, for example, I was in Montenegro three weeks ago doing a capacity building for their national police. You know, the representatives of their FIU, their cyber crimes, and their state prosecutors, and they knew crypto. Um, some of them had mentioned that they didn't see the value of it because it was a Ponzi scheme. Nonetheless, you know, it's a form of transfer of value. Um, and they just got hit with a ransomware attack last week. You know, so it's going to happen. It, but it's one of the ransomware pieces is one of a, a few things that you know they need to consider as far as security goes. You talked about your experience 10 years or so ago at SOCOM and and kind of a lack of awareness at the time of the importance of it. What where should organizations be in the federal government today as far as their awareness and and is there a defense posture that makes sense for organizations to think about or is it is it more an educational and awareness problem at this point that could develop into something more troublesome in the future? So I think the 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 interest there on the education piece are getting a lot of people reaching out asking, you know, what is cryptocurrency? How is it being used? What do we need to conserve? Because it's not just Bitcoin and Ethereum anymore. There's hundreds of tokens that are being used for the transfer of value. Um, but the key piece is how do they how do they integrate the data that you get from cryptocurrency blockchains into their mission space? How does it support their mission and their authorities? You know, that's a uh, that's another one is the authority piece, you know, like what legal ramifications you know, exist if we access a public public blockchain. You've used the term transfer of value on a number of occasions. I imagine there's a reason that you use that term instead of the term payment. Is there a definition there that is important, a, some other kind of distinction that's important? So I look at the mechanism of transfer of value as, as payment, right? Maybe it could be uh, synonymous, but like if you go back to, to early 2000 when we went into Afghanistan, you know, the Afghanis were using lapis as transfer of value, blue, blue stones, you know, um, where we would train soldiers to look for guns, money, and, and people and drugs. You know, you would see a shipment of concrete or timber go by, but that, that's a, that was the a, a transfer of value right there. You know, so I look at the, the methods and the behavior rather than the payment. Uh, when it comes to payment, I don't think money lies. And I think that's where the, the truth in, in payment is, is that if you're sending money to somebody, you're sending it for a reason. Another note that you jotted to me is that crypto and on-chain data 
is a valuable source of intelligence, you write, for DOD, the intelligence community, and other government agencies. And I imagine we'd lump in pretty much any of the law enforcement agencies or uh, financial regulatory agencies into that uh, category as well. How so, Brian? How is that data, that information, um, a, a source of intel? So there's, there's certain data that, that resides on the blockchain that we have access to, whether if you're a law enforcement that, that can um, issue a subpoena to an exchange for additional information, or you are able to, uh, in some, some sense, geolocate, you know, an area. Um, I think, you know, one of, our, one of our analysts was able to use some proprietary information to identify servers that a sanctioned uh, exchange was using and they were able to correlate that with a, uh, a uh, Russian hacking group. Um, you know, that data combined with other sources of open source data becomes very valuable when you aggregate it. In, a, in, in the nature of a technology that the whole point of it was to make it very difficult to trace, if not impossible, what kind of a, of a challenge does that present for LEOs and military organizations and others that do at some time need to perform forensics and find out where something came from and where it went to? Well, I, I'll tell you, like having people, especially people I work with like at Chainalysis, there's not a whole lot of them. There's not a lot of people that are very um, intuitive when it comes to crypto. Like they're, they're very complex uh, investigations, you know? So if you're doing peel chaining or if you're doing mixing or demixing, right? You just, you just can't jump into, you know, in front of a computer screen and start doing it. Like you really have to spend a lot of time, you know, understanding, you know, um, smart contracts, understanding the actual token that you're looking at and how it moves. Um, it, it takes a lot of, uh, a lot of experience in doing it. And I, and we're just getting into it now. I think I've not met many people in the government that really have a, a grasp the way that some of the people at chain analysis do. What are the components that organizations should put in place? I mean, we talk uh, in, in, in the broader technology community and government about the skills that agencies should have in-house and the skills that they can, they, they can obtain from vendors, capability and so on. What does that look like in this sphere, do you think? I think the, the education should be should be baked into anything that an intelligence analyst is doing, especially if they're doing you know uh, financial investigations. Um, I would warn that you know government likes to likes to replicate things on their own, but you know the, the thing about the private sector is that they're good at what they do and costs a lot of money. They spend a lot of money to to do that. It's very hard to replicate. Um, and, and I mean, even in my experience at, at, in the government, we try to do it on our own because we're very um, reluctant to let information leave, you know, our building, our facility for fear of, you know, tradecraft or, or something like that being exposed. Um, but the private sector really plays an important part in the government here because we're doing it on behalf of the government, you know, um, you know, FinCEN, for example, you know, they are the regulatory oversight for for the banking industry, you know, and their transactions. They only get a, a percentage of the financial tra transactions that are done on a daily basis. You know, Chainalysis monitors all the tra transactions done on, on these coins that we that we uh, see on the blockchain. Imagine having access to all that information uh, in a fiat banking system. Chainalysis really goes above and beyond um, 
on the detection and monitoring of that and ensuring that there's transparency within the blockchain. Is there a way to measure progress or success from a federal agency's perspective in the things that we're talking about today? I think in in this space, if like if if you have experience working with the, the law enforcement or the intelligence community, you will see requirements start coming out on cryptocurrency or cryptocurrency related you know um, issues. Uh, you'll see an increase in in indictments or prosecutions regarding cryptocurrency, um, and then of course you'll see a lot of reports and analysis coming out. I think that's how I measure it coming from the IC is requirements and analytic products. Brian Capra, great to have you on the program today. Thanks very much for joining me. Thank you, Francis. Nice to be here. You can read more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The end of the fiscal year is about two weeks away now. The White House has guidance for Congress to prepare for another continuing resolution. Gerard Bedoric is former chief financial officer at the General Services Administration. He's founder of the Federal Robotic Process Automation Community of Practice. Gerard, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Um, This message from OMB to Congress strikes me as kind of a formality, but I wonder if it signals any kind of a difference in the way that CFO shops across government either are or should be preparing for the end of the fiscal year and the beginning of a new one that's probably going to be under a CR. Welcome, Gerard. Yeah. Thank you, Francis. Good, good to be on with you. Uh, yeah, I read through the uh, the information. Uh, it's interesting that, that OMB identified and highlighted some of the things uh, that they considered that needed to continue. Uh, I think this is uh, business as usual for CFOs because when you think about a CR, uh, if you compare it to a government shutdown, CFOs are happy to see the CR. But on the other hand, it, it just uh, it, it ties your hands, uh, restricts your spending. Uh, you're only able to spend uh, for the duration of the CR. You're locked into spending levels of the prior year. So, so the process uh, should already be underway within agencies, and CFOs are are gathering information, gathering spend plans. Uh, uh, looking at what type of flexibility that they might have under the CR. If you're an agency like the Patent and Trade Office, you collect revenue and you have a much more flexibility than uh, what is appropriated by Congress. But there, there are very strict rules around this. Uh, as a CFO, uh, you're responsible for making sure that the agency adheres to those, and you have to work with uh, all of the programs to develop spend plans that uh, will satisfy the CR. The special needs, the special requests that OMB included in this message to Congress, there are only four, Ukraine, COVID-19, monkeypox, natural disaster recovery. Those don't apply to a lot of federal agencies. So is it fair to say then, given how long we've been in the CR universe, that this is kind of business as usual for most financial organizations across government? Uh, that, that is fair fair to say that. Uh, OMB uh, highlighted uh, the broader areas, but there's a lot of detail underneath that uh, tied to that spend plan. And and, and they also uh, ha- had a separate document which talked about exceptions and considerations. So, so every agency has that. Um, you know, you take an agency like GSA, they have to pay rent. They're locked into paying rent. They have agreements. So uh, that, also, that, that was always a, uh, uh, an area that we uh, had to really... Uh, Work closely with both Congress and uh, OMB on during uh, during a CR because we're legally obligated. We're occupying buildings uh, that rent is due. So that's an interesting piece of it, though, because there's two factors here 
that I don't know that agencies were able to plan for. Um, so rent, there are escalators in a lot of those leases, I imagine, that require rent increases that the money wouldn't necessarily, I mean, if you're, if you're on a CR, you're getting the same amount of money to do the same stuff as you did before, but those rents might go up. How do you accommodate that? And how do you accommodate just the broader inflationary challenges that the entire nation is up against in the budgeting process? Yeah, I mean, you have to uh, factor that in within the big picture and make it all work. And, and generally things like uh, uh, one area in the government that there's always a little bit of cushion is, is generally is personnel because you're never able to hire. Uh, people leave uh, quicker than you can hire them. So so they're you know, there, there's some puts and takes within that operating budget and each agency is a bit different, but but CFOs are looking at what type of flexibility uh, they have to accommodate uh, these needs. And, and, and OMB is a good partner in this. They will work with OMB to, to develop solutions. Is there something that if it's not happening now in a financial management organization in government, that's like a red alert and it needs to start happening today in order to prepare for the end of the fiscal year, Gerard? Well, the first thing that that the one of the first things that, that CFOs have to be prepared to do is is what happens if we have a shutdown, and uh, you know it's uh, it's always highly unlikely, but that could happen, and that's uh, that's an area where OMB and all CFOs probably at least a week or so before the CR have to begin uh, begin that planning. Um, the CFOs have to have those spend plans ready to communicate under a CR. And, and that, that information should be ready today. If they wait till the end of the year to, uh, to develop it, then, then that's too late. How does all of this impact the work that the offices are doing on trying to prepare the fiscal 24 requests that are due, I think, October or November? Yeah, you proceed uh, assuming that you will uh, get the funds you requested in 23, but but it's it's a challenge because uh, you're you're working putting all this work in a 24 budget. You're not sure what's going to be approved in 23. You're not sure how long the CR will last. Uh, should you put projects that you had in the 23 budget in the 24 budget in case they uh, do not get approved? So the the you know it comes back to the overall process is. Uh, uh, not as effective as it needs to be. And, and, and hopefully at some point uh, there will be some uh, broad re-engineering of, uh, of the federal budget process because it is challenging to put all this work in the 24 budget and not know uh, what you can spend in 23. What happens October 1st in your former office and other CFO organizations to close out the previous fiscal year that just ended? Yeah, I mean, you are uh, CFOs are monitoring what the spend levels are across all their accounts, and we're the end of the year. So, um, you know, we uh, the, the CFOs put a lot of effort into making sure that you are within all the spending limits. It, it, on October first, uh, you're looking to see where you came out. So, where have you uh, underspent, and how much is that? And uh, you know, wh wh where are there cases where you can carry that money over? Uh, into uh, the next fiscal year, and then um, and then how uh, how do you want to spend that? Gerard Bedoric, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Francis.
You can read more about the OMB guidance to Congress in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.